Right, if you have your Bibles today, please flip to Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 1 to 11. Uh, just a note as you are doing that, uh, we are in need of a few scripture readers uh, to add to our team here. So you have a heart to serve in this way. If you love to bring the word of God to the congregation and uh, to our community, our Lord's love, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, and uh, this is an awesome way uh, that you get to serve and bringing in ushering God's presence. Uh, so we're in Luke chapter 6. Verse 1 to 11 this morning. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated, consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we go into the word together. Father, this morning, God, we come in your house, into your presence to meet with you. And thank you, God, for the privilege to meet with you, the grace and the mercy, God, that allows for us to have this relationship. So this morning, whatever burdens we're carrying, whatever weeks we've had, God, we come to you now, uh, to your throne of grace. And as we look for restoration and freedom, God, may you offer those gifts to us. And may we experience you through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this past Friday uh, on October 1st uh, marked, uh, maybe some of you might have known this, uh, marked uh, where the place where dreams come true, uh, it was the 50th anniversary uh, for Walt Disney Resort in Florida. Uh, if you want to, what I found out as I was reading about that, if you want to work at Walt Disney World, uh, whether it's in LA or in Florida or all the different I don't know what you call it, campuses, uh, <laughs> locations across the world. Uh, there's actually quite a few rules you want to follow. First, first of all, if you want to work out Walt Disney, you're not called a worker. Uh, you're actually called a cast member. Uh, that's your term uh, that you referred to as. And apparently, uh, you can't have the same, everyone's on a first name basis. So there's no Mrs. Who, Mr. Who, Miss, and Mr. Like, it, you know, everyone's a first name basis. And if you're working with, on the same shift with someone with the first first name, you have to change your name uh, for that day. And you have a different name just for that day. That everyone has to have a unique name. There's also height requirements. If you want to play a certain character, Disney princesses, you have to be between 5'4 and 5'8. If you're between 4'11 and 5'2, you could play characters like Alice from Wonderland or Wendy uh, from Peter Pan. Uh, you can't talk about your job on social media. And also, when you end up playing a character, you don't play the character. You're friends with the character. That's how you speak about it. You're not allowed to point. Uh, if someone's asking for directions, you're not allowed to point with one finger because in some cultures that's rude, so you always point with two or maybe three. 
that's a rule. There's no nail polish. Beards have to be trimmed properly, and if you wear glasses, they have to be conservative. Uh, I don't know if mine are considered conservative or not, but with a certain color and a certain design. And since not everyone can sing, uh, like Edina Menzel, uh, if you're so happy to play Elsa, you're not allowed to sing. Uh, that's a rule. And when you're picking up garbage, you can't just pick it up normally. You have to do it magically. Uh, you have to do it magically with a certain swoop and scoop motion that they teach you in training. And you're not allowed to say ever, I don't know. Because the people that play, and when you're in the magical kingdom, you always know <laughs> what the answer is. And if you see a celebrity that visits uh, your location, you have to treat them like anyone else. And if you're playing a character, you don't just have to speak like them, but you also have to write like them. So your autograph, you have to go through training. You have to sign like Goofy. You have to sign like Mickey Mouse. And if you're a new employee, you have to go to Disney University, uh, where you learn the Disney's history and traditions and all these things I'm telling you. And lastly of all, you have to be happy all the time. And if you're not happy, I don't know. Maybe they send you to the dungeon. <laughs> and after all these rules, after all these rules, what used to be fun, you might start thinking otherwise, right? Maybe the magical kingdom's not so magical after all. Maybe the happiest place uh, isn't the happiest place after all. And we're continuing in our series this morning called Meals with Jesus, where we'll see today how the Pharisees have made something that's meant for good into something that's so bad. Something that was meant to be good and meant to be awesome into something that's so bad with all the rules that was created. And uh, Emily referred to it as what we know, I call it as legalism. All these rules added around something that's meant to be so good for us. And as we study the many passages in Luke through this series, they're connected with the meal. Our hope, as you keep hearing this time and time again, our hope in this series is that we won't be a people that only look like Jesus, but we'll be a people that desperately need Jesus and that people see us in that light. And here again, in today's text, we see Jesus' teaching centered around eating. Uh, we centered around eating. The, the, uh, the disciples going through a grain field and eating, and this time on a Sabbath. And a big idea for us this morning is this. Only goodness awaits at the house of God. Only goodness awaits at the house of God. Not rules, not regulations, not restrictions, but only goodness Goodness awaits for those that want the presence of God, that enter into the house of God. We also see that the hungry are filled at the house of God. That if you're spiritually hungry and you're looking for something deeper in your soul, that you've come to the right place. And in the text today, we'll see that with David and his companions, that's what they're looking for. This physical hunger, as they go through the field, that they're fed by the grain. We'll see that with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, that they are filled as well. We'll see it with the man uh, with a disability uh, hanging out uh, in the synagogue, listening to Jesus, uh, receiving his freedom and receiving his restoration. We see that goodness awaits those who enter and want the house of God. As God's house is a place for the hungry. It's a place for the weary. It's a place for the tired, not for the perfect and polished. It's a place for all to come and to experience his goodness and his presence. But we see here today in the text that some people, they ruin what's meant to be good. What's meant to be good. And today we'll see, we'll find the Pharisees speaking with Jesus again and, and this time uh, uh, speaking to him about how he and his disciples are observing Sabbath. 
And the word for Sabbath, as we've mentioned be- here before, is the word Shabbat. And it appears six times here in 11 verses. So we've got to pay attention to that. Uh, Sabbath appears six times in 11 verses. So we've got to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. And also, we also hear a lot of talking, a lot of uh, who said what. Uh, the word for talking, or, or the word refers to talking and communicating. We see that also six times in this passage. So they're talking a lot about Sabbath. And they're talking a lot to each other. So why is Sabbath so important as we go into the word here? As I said before, the word for Sabbath, the Hebrew word is Shabbat, which means literally to cease, uh, to cease all that you're doing. The Sabbath was taught on Mount Sinai uh, through the Ten Commandments. We saw that uh, in Exodus 20 and also Deuteronomy 5. God himself took a Shabbat. He rested in Genesis 2, verse 2 to 3. After all that he created, he, he sat back and rested and enjoyed the creation. And also, what was interesting in my re- reading and research into the text was some rabbis actually taught that in order for the Messiah to come, that the Sabbath needed to be observed perfectly. It had to be observed perfectly in order for the Messiah to arrive. See, the Sabbath is important not because it's a rule in the, in the beginning, the way that it was created, because it's a way in which we experience the presence and the goodness of God. That's why the Sabbath is good. It's the way in which we experience restoration every single week. When we come into the Sabbath, it's a day we can look back in the ways that God is working and moving, and we can rest and trust that God is still doing what only he can do. And as Peter Scazzaro says in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, biblical Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. The time for us to cease to take a break and to see all the things that God is doing and has done in our lives for us to rest. But what happened in Jesus' time was that the Sabbath, which was meant to be good, meant to be a delight, was turned into a bunch of rules. And if you might know this, that there are 613 laws in Leviticus, and 39 of them are category, refer to categories of work that are prohibited, that you can't, things that you can't do on the Sabbath day. So is it with this context that we go into this passage, uh, understanding what the Pharisees are trying to say to Jesus. But what we see here is that for those that enter into the presence of God, it's not about a bunch of rules and regulations. As we go into the Sabbath, it's not a bunch of rules and regulations again. Why? Because God, he doesn't give burdensome rules. That's the Lord that we follow. That's the God that we follow. God doesn't give us burdensome rules. Chapter 6 begins like this. On, a, on sa- one Sabbath, a, one Sabbath, next slide please, and one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful, unlawful on the Sabbath? And maybe a few things to pay attention here. There's a lot of action words as we read this passage going through, a lot of moving through the grain field. The disciples, what, they picked some of the heads of grains, they rubbed them in their hands and they ate the kernels, action words. It's very visual, and this is purposeful. Purposeful by Luke as he's writing this, deliberately painting a picture for us that the disciples were what? They were exerting energy. (laughs) They were exerting energy in order to get something to eat. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to Jesus and his disciples, why are you doing what is unlawful? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And what's fascinating here for the word for unlawful is it's a compound. In the Greek, is actually two words here. It's a not free. 
So literally, it's translated as, why are you doing what is not free on the Sabbath? Why are you doing what is not free on the Sabbath? And this is ironic, and I'll explain in a little bit why. The Sabbath was meant to be, what, rest after work. Also to be remembered uh, as contemplating the old creation, all the things that God is doing and stopping and celebrating what, is, what God is doing. Remember, the, uh, the Sabbath was given at the covenant of the Ten Commandments. After all the good things that God has done, it was to pause and to look back and celebrate and remember all the good things that God has done in rescuing the people from Egypt. So it's ironic here because the Sabbath is meant to be a day of celebration and freedom and restoration. So literally, we can translate this as, why are you doing what you are not free to do on the day of freedom? Why are you doing what is not free on the day of freedom when you're meant to rejoice? Why are you doing what you're not free to do on the day of freedom? So this day of freedom and blessing and celebration was turned into a day of restriction, a day where they're bounded, a day where they're not celebrating, but but they're meant to, uh, to, 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 to hold everything together and follow a bunch of rules. This day of freedom was turned into a day of burden. And here we get this truth that devotion to religious rules, it's, it, it binds. Uh, devotion to religious rule, it binds, it restricts. That are we following a God of freedom, a God of celebration, a God of goodness, or are we following a God that we think is actually about a bunch of rules? a bunch of restrictions. And I pray for us that as a church, as a people, as we come and commune and have relationship with Jesus, may we never be a people and a church that's more interested in religious rules than we are about a relationship with God. May we never be more interested in religious rules than we are about relationship and having a relationship with God. We gotta be careful. It doesn't slip into our lives because we can tell by the way that we talk and maybe the way that we walk. And most importantly, what we think is important as we talk about Christianity and church. Do we talk about how important it is to have this relationship with God or do we talk about the rules more? And we talk about uh, all the restrictions that we have placed onto the faith. See, God doesn't give burdensome rules. Only goodness awaits for those who enter into the house of God. Doesn't give, God doesn't give burdensome rules, but God gives freedom and restoration. God gives freedom and restoration. You go on in verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I love this. Jesus didn't argue with the Pharisees, but he just took them to the word of God. He didn't go into this long argument. He's like, hey, let's just read scripture. <laughs> let's just open the word of God. Let's just see what God says about this. So if that's the case, as they were reading this, he refers to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 to 6, where King David and his companions, they were on the run away from King Saul, and, and King Saul was out to kill David, and they needed to stop, and they were hungry, so they stopped at, at the temple. They stopped at, at the temple, so they, and they went in, and they ate the consecrated bread in the house of God. And who gave it to them? It was Ahimelech, the high priest, the high priest of, of the day, and they gave David uh, some bread to eat, even though that bread was reserved for the priest only. So it was during a time of need, 
During a time of hunger, that David and his companions ate that consecrated bread, that bread that was set, set apart. The point Jesus is making here is that no one within the Jewish tradition would question who King David is. Like King David, what he did was right, no one would question because they acknowledged him to be king. If that's the case, why would they question the God who king, whom King David serves? Why would they question the God who King David serves? Why would anyone say that this is wrong too when someone is in need and comes into the house of God for help? If King David was able to do that, why would we place that burden upon anyone else that actually does need help? If someone is so desperate for Jesus and so, need, so desperate for God, comes into the house of God wanting this relationship, why would we prevent them from having that? Prevent them from experiencing the saving grace of our Savior? And if you refer back to the end of chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 31 here, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, just like how a hospital wouldn't kick someone else out who was actually hurt, the house of God would never reject someone who's actually spiritually hurting and in need of a savior, in need of God. So he challenges and brings up this passage that if you're okay with King David going to the house of God and being filled by the consecrated bread, why would you question the one whom King David serves? What does Jesus mean here in verse 5? That brings it into context that Jesus says all of a sudden, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, this story is also found in Matthew and Mark, but Matthew translates it a little bit differently. Matthew translates it in this way, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath that you hold so holy and so upright and so, so, um, so perfect, the Son of Man, he's Lord over this that you're following. He's above all the rules that you're setting. God is above all things. And we also read in Matthew 12, 6 to 8, which is where that, what I just read there, uh, Jesus also quotes from Hosea 6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And he quotes this in Matthew 12, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Everything physically you see, something greater is coming. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which is from Hosea 6, 6, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's, this is the point here. Jesus is not only claiming to be the Lord, uh, the, uh, to, to be God's anointed one, but he's claiming to be God himself. He's claiming to be God himself here because it was God who established the Sabbath and he's Lord over the Sabbath. David, David was king over here on earth and they were okay with that. How much more should they be okay with Jesus who is the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords in the way that he is living? The Pharisees understood what Jesus is saying here. And for those that say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God, well, this is pretty clear right here. He's claiming, ultimately, why did the Pharisees want to kill Jesus and put him up onto the cross? It wasn't just because he was a nice guy and doing miracles and doing all these things. They wanted to put him on the cross because he claimed to be God. That's the reason why they crucified him. So here is a claim of his lordship, a claim of his divinehood, a divine, his divine person. And, and, and it shows us that he is revealing to us a hint of who he is. But ultimately, it's not about rules and really not about titles. It's about what God desires. What does God desire? God desires relationship more than regulation. God desires relationship more than rules. 
God desires relationship with you more than restrictions. The moment we focus more on rules and regulations, we turn a good thing into a bad thing. We turn a good thing into a bad thing. God is more concerned about us as human beings, as humanity, than he is about protecting our religious rules that we set. He's more concerned about our needs as human beings than he is about protecting our religious rules. God cares more about you. God cares more about you than what you can do. It's not about what you can offer and all the good things that you can do. God cares actually about you and who you are. And I pray that we would be a church that lives that out, that we actually care about people. We want to know them. We want to know their hearts and their hurts. We want to know how their weeks are going. We don't want to just know, hey, what are you good at and how we can use you. That's not what the church is about. That's not what God is about. God's about relationship and coming into a relationship with one another. And God here in this, uh, Jesus here in this passage pointing out David, that he's saying that God gave David strength through the food there and cared more about David than, uh, than about uh, him perishing for the sake of a rule. Like he didn't want David to die in hunger just because he had to follow a religious rule. That's not what he was concerned about. He's concerned about who David is. And God's more concerned about you. He's more concerned about you. So we start seeing a pattern here, and we start following Jesus' logic. Jesus and his disciples, they were hungry. So what? They started picking heads of grain and they started eating. David and his companions were what? They were hungry. And they went into the house of God, and they were filled. And then we go into a section of text here. There was a man with a disability. And he goes to the synagogue, into the house of God, into the church, to listen to Jesus preach, looking for healing, looking to be filled, because only goodness awaits for those who want to enter into God's presence. Goodness awaits for those who enter into the house of God. Of God, And we also learn here that God works for the good of those who seek him. That, that's the, 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 the passages that we're reading here, the verses here. That God only has good things, not rules and regulations, but goodness for us. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal. Verse 8, but Jesus knew that what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. So the man went to the synagogue that day to seek Jesus. I'm sure of that because he knew Jesus was traveling and preaching and teaching and healing. And he was like, maybe, just maybe, I'll go into the house of God today and see what would happen. To seek healing, to seek the presence of God. But the Pharisees, you see this black and white picture that was painted. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They weren't in the house of God to seek Jesus, to seek God, but they're looking there to find out everything that was wrong. All the rules that were broken, that's what they were there for that day, to seek that out. Not the presence of Jesus, not a relationship with Jesus, but the rules, the religious rules. And this man with the shriveled hand was watching Jesus for his teaching. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus to find fault in him. And what's so strange is that the Pharisees believed that Jesus could heal. 
They believed that Jesus could heal, that they went to watch if he would heal. But it wasn't that whether he could perform a miracle, it was that whether he could, would do it on the Sabbath day. <laughs> Which is so strange that you would celebrate a miracle. doesn't matter what day it is, but they went just to look whether he would break the rules on the Sabbath day, looking out for him to do a miracle and then condemn him for actually doing a miracle. It's like, wow, you did a miracle, but it's on a Sabbath day. <laughs> so no, no. You saved that Jesus for Monday. <laughs> All right? Come back Wednesday at 3 p.m., all right? That's, that's miracle hour. So it's not only the hungry who go into the house of God here, as we read with David and Jesus in the grain field, but it's the hurting as well. The hurting who go into the house of God seeking healing, seeking restoration. You see, as we talk about the goodness of God, we have to understand this. You can't stop the good that only God can do. You can't stop the good that only God can do. You can't stop God from doing good things because God is the definition of goodness. Everywhere he is, with his presence, he is good. He is working things out for those who love him. That is who our God is, that he does only good things. And those that want to seek him in his presence, we don't come back with a bunch of rules and burdens that we can't carry. We experience his goodness. We experience his love and freedom and restoration. So Jesus said here to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And maybe he didn't want to stand. He didn't want to draw attention to his disability. He didn't want to stand in front of everyone and be like feeling ashamed of, of his own, own disability and needing of his healing. He didn't want to do that. But Jesus said, no, do this. Have some faith, brother. Stand up. And, and I'm going to do a miracle here. And maybe he didn't want to do this. But part of the healing process is calling and acknowledging the brokenness. And laying that down before God and saying, this is where I need you. It's not weakness to reveal your weakness. It takes strength. It's actually a strength to reveal our brokenness and reveal our weakness. And Jesus said to him, arise and stand. So he got up and he stood there. The literal translation for that, so he got up and stood there, is this. Having risen up, he stood. It's a double affirmation of that. So as he has risen up, he stood. He stood. And this word for risen is fascinating because in the language, there's at least 12 translations of this word. 12 translations. It means to cause someone to wake up from sleep, to cause to stand up from a lower position into a higher position, to move from a standing, a move into a standing position, uh, to cause a someone or something to come into existence, to cause something or someone to return to life to enter into a state of life, to be raised up from sickness, to change to a previous good state, uh, to change back into a previous good state, so to restore, uh, to move into a position by overcoming some sort of obstacle or resistance, to move against and push back against hostility, to make an appearance out of nothing, or to evoke movement from a fixed position. In case you didn't write any of that down, it's okay. The point is this, it's obvious that in whatever meaning it is that Jesus is choosing to use here, that Jesus is bringing this man back to wholeness and wellness. And I don't think it's too far to interpret what Jesus is saying here, that he's using all 12 definitions of the word. That he's restoring this man completely, because that is what we read in the end of verse 
uh, 10 here, as I continue, then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? So he looked around at them and then said to the man, what stretched your hand, he did so, and his hand was completely restored. I believe it's complete restoration, not just of his hand, but of himself as a person. It's not too far to interpret this, to see this, that God raised this man up in every single way possible because only goodness awaits for those who enter into the house of God. When we encounter Jesus, when we come to his table and share a meal with him, when we have communion with Jesus, the king, our burdens are lifted. We are restored to our state that God would have us in. Whatever was weighing us down, whatever the impossible situation was that you're facing, whatever it is that we have gone through, are going through right now, and will go through, the weight of that burden is lifted. Those who encounter Jesus are restored, not given a bunch of rules, given a bunch of regulations. Restoration is the business that God is a part of, restoring lives and making us whole again. And here's the sad thing, is that if the Pharisees and some of us can be caught in this, and me included, weren't so busy discussing what they might do to Jesus instead of discussing who this Jesus is and wanting to be a part of them, they would have recognized and followed him. They would have recognized the divine moment that they're a part of and seen and be part of that miracle and part of the celebration. So I come to an end this morning. Church, this morning, I don't want us to miss what Jesus is doing as we have a relationship with him, as we come to his table, to miss what Jesus is doing. If people were to look into your life, look into your life, I wonder what they would see about God. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. As they look into our lives, what do they see about God? Do they see rules and regulation and just a bunch of ways to do things? Or do they see a relationship, a deep yearning and desire and desperation to come before God. If people were to look into our church and ask the same question, what would they see? Would they see a bunch of people that are perfectly polished in the pews? Or would they see a people that's broken and hungry for God? That invites people to do the same. Come. We have this relationship with God. Come. We've found, we've seen and have this relationship with the Savior. Come and be restored. Come and have your burdens lifted. Come into the house of God to be filled and healed. Come into the house of God to experience the love and restoration that only Jesus gives. And we can't say that to others unless we want that as well, unless we desire that as well. This past week, we had an opportunity for a prayer walk. It was this last uh, Tuesday, I believe, where uh, just a bunch of us were out, just, you know, had a little map to go out and pray and walk and pray that God would give us eyes to see our community. I'm not sure if you noticed, uh, I just noticed this today, driving up and doing a bit of research, that I don't know if we renamed this area, it's still called South Hill, but the banners on Fraser says Sunset on Fraser. That's a new banner that's put. I think they're trying to talk about this whole area and referring and and renaming it to Sunset on Fraser. Uh, we prayed. Uh, we prayed around the high school. We prayed for the stores and Thanksgiving for all the coffee shops and gathering places that we have on Fraser Street. Uh, we walked through a couple. Uh, walked past a temple. We prayed against the spiritual dark forces that are real. We prayed for the homes and families and all the churches in the area. Uh, did you know that Mountain View Seminary, a cemetery, is actually the only cemetery in Vancouver? 
and it was created to honor the fallen soldiers of World War uh, of the World War. I didn't I didn't know that. I was doing some research. Did you know that English is the dominant language used in the homes in this area at 50%, which is lower than the Vancouver average? Did you know that Cantonese is the second most used language in the area at 15%, and Chinese is the most common ancestry at 35%, followed by East Indian at 16%, and and then Filipinos at 14%. That there's also a population of Vietnamese, Spanish, Mexican, and Middle Eastern ancestries. And this stat... This stat affects me and broke my heart, and I didn't know this, that 18.5% of the population in this area live in low-income housing. 18.5% of the population in this area live in low-income housing. And of all the families, 18.1% of families are counted and come from single-parent families. I didn't know that until God revealed and led me and led us and our team as we prayed and, we, and, and we're praying over a city to be like, hey, who are the people that we're serving here? Why has God called us to be where we're at? See, as we continue on with this series here and as we learn to be a church, as we learn to have communion with God, only goodness awaits for those that come into the house of God and our hearts and burdens ought to be for the people in our community, whether physically or the people that we're in relationship with that we want them to have this restoration and have this freedom in God. And pray, I pray, church, that our eyes will be open to the people that you encounter every single day to invite them into this relationship, whether it's your physical neighbor or the people at work and your family and friends, that you would bring the hope of Jesus into their life, into all areas of the city, because the needs are great. People need the goodness of God. We need the goodness of God. And people need the spiritual healing and the healing that God, that only God can give. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word again. We thank you, God, that you're not a God of rules. You're not a God of regulations. But you're a God that heals and restores. So, Lord, I pray for everyone that's here and listening online, God, that we would experience your freedom and goodness that we would find rest in you, that we would bring our weary and burdened souls before you at the altar, and that we would find rest in you, God. And Lord, I pray that as we go into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into the city, that you will give us eyes to see, God, what it means to bring your kingdom here as we sung, Lord. What is your call for us specifically at our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships, in our friendships? What does it mean to bring your kingdom into those areas? Give us that personal word. And may we be a light that you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.